When it comes to defensive behavior, there are several mechanisms that people use to defend their behavior. One of the most used, the most common, is called rationalization. That's where the person defends bad behavior and explains it in such a way as it seems proper. King Saul was a master at rationalization. In chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, it is a study in the deceptive power of sin. It reveals, this chapter reveals the power and the destructive nature of sin, especially in Saul, because his sin is the sin of disobedience. But Saul has a way of explaining it away, in a way that sounds so, so very logical or rational. Last week, we saw King Saul receive a command from God to eradicate the Amalekites as a judgment, a long-awaited judgment from God. And Saul immediately won a decisive victory over the, the enemies of Israel. But he did not follow the instructions. He allowed the king, he took the king alive, and he kept the best of the animals. So let's begin in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11. This is God speaking to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. So it's a sleepless night, but early the next morning, Samuel sets out to find Saul. Verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Now this isn't the Carmel where Elijah performed the prayer that brought the fire of God down. It's, it's another part of Israel with the same name. Samuel had to be very disheartened to find out where Saul was, that he actually had set up a monument to himself in response to the victory that had just been achieved. What an inappropriate response to a victory that God had given. But it does testify to Saul's ego at this point. Leaders uh, still do this, maybe not physical monuments, but they build their ministry around hero worship. It's very common today. When Moses achieved a victory over the same enemy, the Amalekites, this was his response back in Exodus 17. 15. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. But Saul's monument is to himself. The impropriety of, of this moment is incredible, but it kind of is an insight into how Saul is thinking, into his soul. When Samuel finally does find Saul, Saul's in the best of humor. Everything is hunky-dory with Saul. Verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. I have fulfilled the word of the Lord. I've done everything that he has asked me to do. Now, God had actually spoken to Samuel during the, the previous night and had actually told him what Saul would say. So the very words that Saul uses to greet Samuel are the words that God has given to Samuel. 
Samuel was very much aware that Saul would claim that he had fulfilled the word of the Lord. Saul has this appearance to Samuel. He's very happy. Everything is fine. The Lord bless you. These are the kind of people that gossip behind your back, but then when they greet you, they have this syrupy, sweet, oh, how are you, brother? How are you, sister? And they're saying all kinds of things behind you. Or Saul is so deceived that he really does believe that he is obeying the Lord. To that point, I can't hardly believe he would be, but this would be the height of deception if he really does believe but sin has a way of blinding people so that they actually do not know what they're doing. And you can actually uh, push your conscience away from God so that your conscience doesn't even bother you. One time I had this work project, so there was a crew of guys working. So there were several guys digging trenches. So this one guy, we would put a stake at one end and a string, and their job was simply to dig along the, str the string. We were going to be using these trenches. So I put this one guy digging, and I went away. I came back about 15 minutes later. I looked at the string, and the trench was going like this. So I went down to him, and I said, hey, step, step out. And when he stepped out, the string snapped back about two feet. As he was digging, he was pushing the string. So he was following the string all right, but he was pushing the string away from its original course. This is exactly what happens with people who disobey repeatedly God's commands in their lives. You can actually push your conscience to the level that you're not convicted or you don't feel guilty. This is very likely, possibly, what was happening with Saul. He'd done this so many times that he actually did not even feel guilt. The writer of Hebrews says that we can push our conscience to the limit and to the place where we don't feel guilt, and it takes God's Word to actually cut through and allow us to feel the truth and the conviction or the guilt of our own sin. Listen to these words from Hebrew 4. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that's the Roman sword, so if you cut this way or you cut this way, had a sword, had, a, had an edge on each side. And Paul's, or whoever is the writer of Hebrews, we don't know that it was Paul, uses that analogy as the Word of God is so sharp that it can cut either way. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That is a powerful description of God's word penetrating our heart. Saul says, I have fully obeyed God. So listen to what Samuel says. But Samuel said, verse 14, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? If he was to have eradicated everything, why do I hear sheep bleeding? Why do I hear cattle lowing? These are Samuel's famous words. How is it possible if you have fulfilled God's word that the air is filled with sounds that should not be? It's proper just to ask yourself right now. If I am fully obeying God, 
What is this bleeding of the sheep, this lowing of the cattle in my life? So we're going to get into Saul's rationalization. He is the master of this defensive mechanism. Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord our God, but we totally destroyed the rest. So rationalization, one of the first things it does is cast the blame on someone else. So he says it was the soldiers who brought the best of the animals. And of course, this is the noble purpose here. It's going to be to use them. But this is an age-old problem of blaming someone else for the very problem that I have created. We can go back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3:12. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So Adam blames Eve. He eventually even blames God. So Adam, like Eve and the rest of human nature, our easy response is to blame someone else for our mistakes. It's always easy when it comes to the easy stuff to blame someone else. It's my parents' fault the way I am. It's my wife's fault. It's my situation. It's my job. But it's not my fault. That's the first step of rationalization. And then secondly, here comes this engineered excuse of why we actually did this. So Saul minimizes the seriousness of his actions by claiming that his soldiers kept the best because they have this noble, noble motive. We plan to sacrifice these animals to the Lord. It's almost like, yeah, I did cheat on my taxes, but I plan to give a big part of that to the Lord. Yeah. I, uh, I have been, you know, ripping off the company for the last 20 years, but I, I plan to pay it back with interest. Okay. I, I have a noble motive for what I'm doing. That is rationalization. 1 Samuel 15, 15 says, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them, this is Saul speaking here, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice. Now notice these next few words because it's insightful to Saul here. To sacrifice to the Lord your God. That's kind of a slip up here. We, when we're really not right and we're really holding things back, things slip out. So why doesn't he say my God, our God? No. He's detached from God. And there is a way that things have of coming out. So it's Samuel's God. So we, we, we spared these animals. We want to sacrifice them to your God. But we totally destroyed everything else. God had already described Saul's heart, the condition of his heart. Refer back to verse 11. He has turned away from me and has not carried out my instruction. That is a total picture of Saul's heart. So we get the strong language from Samuel here in verse 16 enough stop that's enough don't even say another word Saul enough Samuel said to Saul let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night and Saul says tell me I think he would I think he regretted ever saying that so Samuel brings a clear picture of what Saul has done it has three parts he will present these three parts with a presentation of what Saul has done. 
And then like a masterful prosecutor, he will ask for God to pronounce the sentence. In verse 17, he's reminding Saul of his position, who he is, and how he ever got that position. This is probably the beginning of all disobedience. We forget who we are, maybe momentarily. We forget who we are for a moment. We forget who we are for a day, for a week, for a month. If we ever forget our relationship to God, who we are, what God has done for us, who God is in our life, we are vulnerable. So Samuel says, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. You didn't get here by yourself. It was God who put you there. You've probably heard about Abraham Lincoln and the, the story of the turtle on the post. The turtle, turtle is on the post, and when you see a turtle on a post, you know he never got there by himself. Somebody put him there. Saul was not king on his own. God had put him there. In verse 21, Remember what you said when you were anointed king, Saul? But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing? And even when he was acclaimed king, Saul's humility kept him hidden. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. He had humility in the beginning. But where is he now? That, that man in the beginning is gone. Samuel is saying, you may have made yourself in your own eyes not responsible for the people, but God put you in this position, Saul, so that you would be responsible. He gave you the responsibility, just the way he does for a husband in marriage, a wife in marriage, a father for the children, a mother for the children. You're responsible. This can't be shirked. It can't be thrown to someone else. You are responsible, Saul. That's the first thing Samuel says. The second thing, he reminds him of his mission. It's unambiguous. It was very clear. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Anything unclear about that, Saul? And then thirdly, he says, why did you pounce on the plunder? because they weren't supposed to take any plunder from this victory. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Why? Very similar to what Samuel has said to Saul on another occasion. You have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. So it's a good moment to just pause and say disobedience to God's words is always foolish. And why did Saul do it? That's what we're studying. Why do we do it? Sin makes us do very foolish things. It blinds us. It causes us to rationalize. But every time we disobey God, we are demonstrating that we do not believe God is wise, all-powerful. We might say we do, but our actions declare that we actually don't believe that. Saul's disobedience was very evil in the sight of God. Saul wants to blame his people. 
In fact, he's going to double down on what he has already said and insist. And usually this is what rationalization does. It just doesn't give up. Verse 20, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. He had been told to listen to the sound of the words of the Lord, listen to him, and obey him. And Saul says, that's exactly what I did. But there's another slip up here, and this is what happens when you're not truthful. Saul inadvertently mentions about the king here. I brought Agag the king. Samuel's had enough of hearing this rationalization and this blaming and this excuse making. So he now turns to the prosecutor. And he says in these very famous words, chapter 15, verse 22, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice? Do you think God is thrilled to death you brought back the best of the sheep and the best of the cattle? As much as in obeying the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So that's what he did. And now these very powerful words that actually specify how bad this is to the Lord. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. In those last few words, this pronouncement specifies exactly what Saul has done and how this affects God. Saul's defense is very similar to how he has defended himself on other occasions. Well, let me just boil this down and say biblical faith, if you believe the Bible, biblical faith, look at it like a coin. Let's say I have a quarter here, and we know that the, the coin has two sides. So faith, one side of the coin is believing. So I believe, yes, I believe the Bible. The other side of the coin is obeying. So if you only follow one side of the coin and you believe, but the other side of the coin, you don't obey, you have no faith. James said it like this. If you are in a rowboat and you don't have faith and you don't have obedience to obey, you're like in the middle of a lake with a rowboat with one oar and you're sitting there with one oar, what will the boat do? The boat will go in circles. You will never get to the destination. You need two oars. And James in his letter says that faith, in order to have two oars, one is faith to believe God, and the other oar is the faith to obey. The problem is, this problem that Saul had is a very common problem in our society today. And that is to not obey God's words in our life and to rationalize that it doesn't apply. It doesn't apply to me, it doesn't apply to my situation, but Samuel makes this very clear, and incidentally, the words that he says here apply to all of us. They're powerful words. Jesus quoted them. Paul quotes them. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is right there. No, he does not. 
These might be beautiful lambs. They might be blue ribbon cattle. The Lord doesn't care. He doesn't want these sacrifices. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. See, Saul had fallen into this trap of actually believing he could negotiate. He could bargain with God. I made a decision. I did this. But I... I also did this that was good. That may have been a little bad, but I did this that was good. This is a mentality that is very common. Maybe I've messed up, but I have done a lot of good. Saul would be saying, Samuel, you, want to, you only want to talk about what I didn't do. You're not talking about what I did. But the scripture gives no indication God is interested in negotiating or bargaining with any of us when it comes to obedience. He expects full obedience. He doesn't say, well, you've got about 85% obedience here. That's pretty good. The problem is that we all are disobedient. And the only way we get to heaven is actually acknowledging our sinfulness, not explaining it away or rationalizing it away. Saul makes a confession to Samuel. It's a pretty worthless confession. It's a confession without contrition. It's a meaningless apology. Have you ever had your kids fight and then you, you, know, you have these two kids fight and, they've, and you want to teach them a lesson and you say, all right, say, you, say you're sorry to your sister. Sorry. <laughs> you're not teaching them anything, all right? If you let them get by with that, just sorry between the teeth, right? An apology has to actually mean something. There has to be some contrition there has to be some repentance. Saul has no repentance, no contrition. Listen to his words. I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Notice excuses. We see a, a real confession, a real apology has no excuses. We're going to hear several of them right now. Yeah, I did do that. But I was afraid of the men, so I, I gave in to them. This is true, not that he's really afraid of them, but he is afraid of not having that opinion that he wants from people. He really wants to be held high in people's opinion. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Utter rationalization. It's a meaningless confession. There's no contrition. There's no, there's no sorry here at all. Samuel refuses. Saul wants him to come and worship in front of the people because Saul is big on how people perceive him. Perception is everything to Saul. He wants the elders, he wants the people to see this, the lack of transparency, the authenticity in Saul is really obvious. Samuel refuses. Verse 26, but Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Saul gets dramatic here. He's used to people doing what he wants to do. Samuel doesn't do what Saul wants him to do. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and tore it. That's pretty, uh, pretty powerful grip here, but it's actually a very pathetic scene that Saul is so pathetic that he reaches out and he's begging Samuel to go with him when he worships so that people can think everything is fine with Saul, everything is fine with Samuel. Samuel loses no opportunity here. 
He says in verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom. Just the way you tore my robe, God has torn the kingdom from you, Saul. Today, and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. And he will be a man that will obey the voice of the Lord. In verse 14, back when Saul first started demonstrating his disobedience and his unwillingness to obey the Lord, Samuel had said this to him, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of the people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And now in verse 29, he says, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Now, there are critics of the Bible who actually go through the whole Bible and look for contradictions. And people have actually written books on the contradictions of the Bible, trying to demean it so that people will not have faith. And this is one of the, of the verses that they have found as one of the great contradictions of the Bible. Because Samuel has just said that God doesn't change his mind, when we previously had known that God has said to Samuel that he regrets. He's sorry that he made Saul and that he made him king. And now we hear that he never changes his mind. That would seem to be a contradiction. But this whole story actually tells us ahead of time how everything is going to happen before it ever happens. Samuel actually tells us in the beginning of the story that God revealed to him, and Samuel revealed it to the people, exactly what this king would do and how, what the people would do and what the results would be. There's an interesting thing when it comes to our relationship to God. God permits us to make these lousy mistakes that bring such pain because he didn't make robots. He doesn't want robots. So God will allow you to disobey him. God will allow you to bring hurt on yourself and your family. He will allow you to walk away from him. To make you stay is to command your allegiance God wants that allegiance, that love, that willingness to come from our heart. That I love God because I love God and I want to serve him. That didn't happen with Saul. And God wasn't about to make him. Notice in verse 30, after he tears Samuel's robe and Samuel uses the moment to describe exactly what has happened to Saul. Saul replied, this is doubling down on the... Uh, on the confession, I have sinned, but please honor me. This is probably your greatest example of the lousiest confession and apology in the entire Bible. This is everything that apology is not. First of all, when you want to apologize for something that is wrong, you acknowledge what you did wrong without any buts and excuses, any blame. I have done this. There's no buts. And then you explain how you've hurt the person and you promise not to do it again. Saul says, I've sinned, but please honor me. I know I did wrong, but please honor me in front of the elders here, before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Again, it's your God, not my God. Worship the Lord your God, showing his detachment that has grown over time. It's a dangerous place when we gradually move away from God, and it can happen 
just gradually, but we're moving away from God, and then we can actually rationalize things that we're doing. But this final confession is an insight into Saul's soul. The major concern for Saul has been throughout his life and continue the years remaining will always be how he is perceived. This is a bondage. If you always are worried about how you are perceived, it will be such a bondage. I mean, you don't want to offend people. You would be a little bit off your rocker if you wanted to go around and offend people. There are a few people like that. But let's say that you really want to live in peace. There is a strong urge to always be liked as Saul, to have people esteem you. This was a passion with Saul. It was relentless that he wanted people to think highly of him. It is such a bondage. But Samuel actually agreed. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Samuel's not honoring Saul here. He's actually worshipping the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. I mean, he's seen what's going on with Samuel and Saul, and he thinks, Man, maybe there's a chance for me. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother the childless among you. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. This is a prophet not to be messed with. But it was over for Saul. He will still be king for a few years, but it's all over. Though his reign will go, go on and there'll be many more years where he will rule, his relationship with God ends. Verse 34, then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Saul's reign is a tragedy, but it's a tragedy because of his sinfulness of disobedience. If it was God's leader, it didn't have to turn out this way. But I would say Saul is a picture of, of us in so many ways. It's a disappointing picture. You would like Saul to recognize his own mistakes, recognize his own sin, and just own up to it and say, man, I did this. I recognize. I don't know, I don't know what I was thinking. It just doesn't happen. But do you know that happens to us more often than not? How hard it is, how difficult it is for us to actually just admit, uh, I made a mistake. That's me. I'm sorry. I apologize. There's so many buts, so many excuses, so many blamed people, a refusal to accept, so many fake apologies. But God is saying to us today, Stop that blaming other people. Stop making excuses. Stop rationalizing. You want to live for me? You want me to bless your life? Be serious about obeying my word, and I will bless your life. If not, you're on your own. That's a pretty serious indictment. But I will tell you there is one king who did obey, one king who didn't make any excuses. He's Jesus. One king whom God was so pleased with. Three times God actually spoke from heaven during Jesus' ministry, and his voice was heard. 
God speaking. Here is one of those occasions. Matthew 3, 17, And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. No disobedience here. Paul wrote about Jesus in the Philippians in this most eloquent prose. Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. That's just not beautiful prose. That's a beautiful picture. Jesus first coming and humbling himself even unto death. Even the death on the cross. And then God exalts him to the highest place. And he gives him a name that is above every name in heaven and on earth. And one day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 